So this morning is Sunday, December 17th. It is our morning service, and our message this morning is Pearls and Stones. Turn with me to Luke 9, would you? This on Wednesday, somebody alluded to a question about the transfiguration. There's a strange question asked or statement made of Jesus just prior to the transfiguration. I'm really not going to teach on the transfiguration this morning. I want to teach you a concept called stringing pearls. But this was an excuse to be able to cover more than one subject as we start. Are you all there? Are you in Luke 9? Okay, well, we're going to be in Luke 9 starting in verse 27. 26. Let's start in 26. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of his Father and of his holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. What a powerful message, huh? There's a group of people called preterists, which I don't wholly disagree with, although we find large areas of disagreement. And uh, they use this verse to teach that the kingdom of God appeared in all of its natural setting in the first century, that Jesus returned in the first century, that He gathered His elect in the first century, and that we're in the millennial reign now. Without long theological dissertations, World War I and World War II and the Civil War and Vietnam and Iraq put a little kink in that plan. Isaiah did not describe a day where the lamb would lay down with the lion next to an M16 that was being fired at someone. He didn't describe a millennial reign in a day when there would be six million Jews killed in a holocaust or Joseph Stalin burying people in pits alive. The millennium was a day when peace would be forced upon the earth. So without going down that road much further, what on earth could he have meant? This was one of the questions we got Wednesday night. And Forgive me for starting a Sunday this way, but I promise it will start to make sense. About eight days after Jesus said this, what's the this refer to? The statement he just made about eight days after Jesus had said, some here won't die until they see the kingdom of God, something happens, something momentous, something worth writing in the Scripture for all time. Luke introduces this next topic that is the transfiguration on the basis of the previous statement. He says about eight days after Jesus said this, something happened. Well, let's see what it was. After Jesus said this, He took Peter... John and James with him and went up to a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor. Glorious splendor. Talking with Jesus, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Before we read any further about Peter, and I promise I'm not going to teach on the transfiguration today, we're getting to a topic called stringing pearls. I want to tell you something. People have argued. They've wondered, why on earth Moses and Elijah? Some say they're the two end time prophets. Some say all kinds of things. Let me give you just a hint as to what I think. When we say Moses, we think of a lawgiver. We think of somebody who brought the law. Israel didn't think of Moses just like that. They did think of him as who brought the law, but to them, law is synonymous with life because Deuteronomy says, this law will be for you life. The day that they crossed into the promised land from two mountain peaks, the law was read along with its curses, and the side that the law was read was called life. The other was death, 
To them the law was life. So they saw Moses as somebody who brought them into life, out of bondage and into life. What would we call that in New Testament times? Salvation. Now, it had been promised also that somebody would come before the age of the Messiah, that Elijah would come at the renewal of all things. Why these two prophets? Because Jesus was about to initiate salvation in the fullest, newest, truest sense. And these two prophets, better than any other prophets in all of the Old Testament, were associated with salvation in the Jewish mind. And that's not our text this morning. That's just something that I'd hoped you would glean. They spoke about His departure. That word is exodus. They spoke about His exodus, which He was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw His glory. What did he say earlier in this question about people seeing the kingdom of God? He said they would see the kingdom of God. Well, Peter, James, John, they saw Jesus in His glory with two men standing with Him. Verse 33, As the men were leaving, Jesus, Peter said to Him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Now, praise God, when Peter is talking out of his ear, so to speak, at least he's saying good things. What does he want to do? He wants to build a shelter in the house of God. He wants to live in the presence of God always. He said, it's good for us to be here. Now, guys, a horrible, bloody price was paid for you to have access 100% of the time to the presence of God. You don't have to build a lean-to there. You can reside in it all of the time. That's why Jesus didn't allow him to build a shelter there. It would have become an altar. It would have become something that they went and worshipped rather than something they carried around with them all of the time. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. What led Israel in the desert during the day? A cloud. What filled Solomon's temple? A cloud. Isaiah spoke of seeing a cloud. The cloud was associated with God's presence. In fact, it was associated with a concept called kavod which means the weightiness of God. We translate it the glory. The idea was when this cloud was present, you knew God was there. You could feel it. It was tangible. You could touch Him. They saw a cloud. This let them know God's presence was there. And it enveloped them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is where we want to focus our topic this morning. This is My Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. Now, before I tell you about this, I want to ask you, if I say four score and seven years ago, does that remind you of anything? Yeah, Gettysburg Address, right? If I say, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, that reminds you of something. Does it? It reminds you of something? All right, we're talking about a constitution, or at least a preamble to it. If I say, I had a dream, that reminds you of something. If I said all three in the same sentence, in some way, if I strung them together, might that relate some concepts to you? Something about sacrifice and freedom. Something about vision and rights and unalienable rights and civil rights. If you took the time to think about why I strung those three things together, might you draw some larger context than just defining each individual word? Yeah, you might, right? Well, the Jews were really neat people. They still are really neat people. And they had this concept when they taught And remember that because of the house of Bet-Sefer, where you learn the five books, because of the house of Bet-Talmud, 
where you would have an understanding in the house of Midrash, where you would have learned all 39 books because of this superb Jewish educational system, the audience of the first century book of Luke understood the Word. How many people are on this mountain? Well, there's Moses and Elijah. Their significance in in the history of Israel is greater than that of maybe Alexander Hamilton and George Washington in our history. Their very presence there communicated something. When God Himself speaks from a cloud and He makes a three-part statement, this is My Son, the one that I have chosen, listen to Him, that was just like stringing together, I have a dream, we the people, and fourscore and seven years ago. They understood Him to be speaking about something in a larger context. This concept is called stringing pearls. God in His infinite wisdom would give you something that would be a pearl, a precious insight, something valuable but not easily found that you could tuck away. And when I gave you more than one without referring to them directly, this was called stringing pearls. It was a way of speaking to people without having to go into all of the depth that they already knew. Does that make sense? Now, Jews did this kind of thing all of the time. There's a principle called remez. And in remez, what I would do is If I wanted to draw your attention to John 3.16, I would quote part of John 3.15. You knowing the Word very well would immediately jump to the, the verse afterwards, thinking about it, and would respond with a verse that was related without telling me John 3.16. In other words, you would, I would mention something you about John 3.15. You would respond with, yeah, uh, Moses lifted up a snake in the desert and draw all the people to it. That let me know that you understood not only was John 3.16, for God so loved the world, next, but you also understood the deeper context. The Jews had these word plays. They had this understanding that was so profound they could refer to something without referring to it. Well, then the question becomes, why did God say this? God is going to split the heavens. He's going to speak to a people on a mountain there to see the glory of God, the coming of the Son in His kingdom. They're supposed to witness something that they're going to preach for the rest of their lives. Of all the things that God could say to Peter, James, John, and Jesus here, why did He say this? Well, they were Jews. And understanding the Jewish background, and understanding the Jewish culture, the Jewish teaching methods, God addressed them as Jews. And a great rabbi would address his students with this concept of stringing pearls. And when he said, this is my son, that brought their attention to a particular psalm. You want to turn there and find out what God was talking about? This would be Psalm 2. Keep your finger in Luke. When God said, this is my son, it was the same way as saying, I have a dream. Immediately when I say, I have a dream, you think of Martin Luther. When God sa- I'm talking about the civil rights leader. When God said, this is my son, immediately they would have drawn their attention to this verse in Psalm 2, verse 7. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. When you read this psalm, it is amazing. God is speaking of an individual on the earth that is His only begotten Son that He will rule the world through. When God speaks from the cloud to His Jewish Talmudim disciples, He speaks to them and says, This is My Son. 
they immediately understood the larger context was this is the one who will rule the world through God, who will get the nations as an inheritance. Well, what was the next part of God's phrase? Whom I have chosen. Now, if that doesn't immediately bring up something in your mind, I'll give you a hint. It's in Isaiah 42. Turn there. Turn quickly. <laughs> we got a lot to cover today. I'm going to stuff you full of the Word. In Isaiah 42, it says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. It goes on to dis- describe this man as bringing justice to the earth, to the ends of the earth, his rule going out from Zion. When God said, this is my son, he meant this is the king who will rule all of the earth. When he said, my chosen son, this is the one whom I've chosen, he was speaking of Jesus as the one who had the Spirit of God on him to bring justice to the world. And you know what? The disciples understood it because they knew the Word. Well, what about the last one? What did Jesus say or God the Father say about Jesus here? This is my Son whom I have chosen and do what? Listen to Him. Now I'm curious, that word listen, does anybody remember what that is in Hebrew? Shema. 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 It doesn't just mean to hear what He says, it means to obey Him. Moses, the great lawgiver who brought salvation to the nation by bringing them out of Egypt and into the promised land or up to its borders. He told them something in Deuteronomy 8.15. He said, God will raise up a prophet like me and you must listen to him. Do you remember the discussion in the early chapters of John? Who is this Jesus? Well, I think he's a prophet. They were, or the prophet. This is what they were talking about. In the messianic expectations, some thought he would be a king. Others thought he would be an anointed prophet. They were divided. Some saw him as political while others saw him religious. God strings together all three of these pearls and said, He is all of the above. He is my son. I'm pleased with him. You better listen to him. By the way, the term Shema carries with it obedience. When Israel would pray the Shema, the Lord our God, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. When they would pray that, it didn't just mean that you were acknowledging it. It meant that you were being obedient to that fact. When God tells them this, it carries with it the penalty of Deuteronomy 8.15. If you don't listen to Him, you will be cut off. This concept of stringing pearls pervades the Scripture. And when it's not stringing pearls, it's usually remez. In other words, if He's not just tying one idea to the next idea to the next idea, expecting the people to get the larger context, then it's an example of remez where he's asking a question by quoting a verse before or after, seeing if they know what he's implying. The Jews were after understanding. God is after understanding, not intellectual acknowledgement. If Judah's watching something and he asks me an intelligent question, it lets me know he's thinking deeply about it. More than that, it's the best way to gauge whether or not he truly is understanding. Have you never been asked a question? Uh, here's one. Honey, you're not even listening to me. Huh? What, uh, sure I was, sweetheart. Well, what did I just say? requires no thought. You simply roll back the tapes and you can spit out the last sentence that came out of her mouth even though you had not been listening. Now, you guys are looking at me like I'm an alien. You have to know what I'm talking about. You're men. Required no thought. That's what our learning style is like. Simply stuff us with information. We'll regurgitate it for you. Oh, boy. No understanding. God required more. He wanted them to talk about the Word as they went about their day. 
Every time they went in and out of a house, they were to talk about the Word. They were supposed to bind it on their hands, bind it on their heads, talk to their sons when they woke up and when they laid down. When they went in and out of their city gates, He wanted it in them. He wanted it to pervade them. One of the reasons that we struggle to understand so much of the Scripture is we don't understand the Word. We don't love it. We don't eat it. We don't devour it. Turn to the book of Hezekiah with me. Wow, that's interesting. A few of you are turning. Your pastor is such a mean, ugly, bad guy. Now, before I did that to you, ugly thing to do, I know, wouldn't you think, doesn't this thought hit you sometimes? Well, I know most of Christianity doesn't know the Word. They don't understand end times. They don't understand Jewish roots. But we, we know, right? Somehow or another, we may not be perfect, but we're better than the rest, right? This is in every denomination. It creeps in here. We have to be careful. The truth is, we are Gentiles. We're godless heathens, except by the grace of God, He purchased us, the people who weren't looking for Him. You did not grow up with His Word permeating your very soul by your culture, an example, but the Jews did. This is why we learned from them, even though there were hypocrites among them. This is how Jesus could speak of the Jewish leadership and say, listen to them, they sit in Moses' seat, but don't do what they did. Because the culture was designed to teach about God. Well, I told you our message was called what? Pearls and stones. I just told you about stringing pearls, didn't I? So what's that mean we must be going to talk about next? Stones. Not getting stoned. Stones. That has a variety of meanings too, doesn't it? Just imagine, just imagine the context. Turn with me to Luke 20. Do you all like that? What God said about His Son and stringing pearls? you all learn something there? Good. Have I bought your attention then for another 50 minutes so I can teach you what I want to teach you? Good. And if not, Matt will guard the door. <laughs> In Luke 20, we have a parable. Now, ironically enough, like most of the other parables I've been teaching you out of Luke, somehow or another we got a bad name on this. In the King James, this parable in Luke 20, verse 9, was called the wicked husbandman. Husbandman. Seems like such a strange word, huh? Since I don't speak Victorian-era English, I bought a translation in today's English. And it is called the parable of the tenants. And while this parable does talk about tenants, just like the prodigal son talked about a prodigal son, just like the parable of the workers who were hired late talked about workers, the emphasis is on something else. When we talked about the parable of the prodigal son, we renamed it. We renamed it a man with sons because he was the star of the story. When we talked about this other parable with people paid at different times, we renamed it the parable of the benevolent landowner or the merciful landowner because the emphasis was on him. Well, what is this one called in your Bible? Y'all can talk to me. If you don't talk to me, I won't know you're there. The size of the overwhelming crowd today is just blowing me back and I'm scared and hiding behind my pulpit. Talk to me. What is it called? Parable of the Tenants. That's good. You find your speaking voice. You give it a chance. The Parable of the Tenants. Look at verse 9. I want you to tell me, is this really, are the tenants the star of the story here? 
He went on to tell the people this parable. By the way, interesting before this, and I don't have time to teach you, there's a whole discussion on a Hebrew principle called Shmiha. Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? He said, well, how did John get his authority? You answer me, I'll answer you. We'll cover that another day. Shmiha. If you want to look it up, there's... Well, you probably can't, huh? Yeah, I bet you could. Yeah, there's some on... Go to followtherabbi.com. That'll help you. Verse 9, you ready? He went on to tell them this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. During this time period, what would happen is there would be sharecroppers. Sharecroppers in the south were poor people in the southern part of the United States who worked on someone's land for a percentage of the crops. Sharecropper, hence that term. These are sharecroppers. Usually they would give up some 60% of the produce because they didn't own the land. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, I want you to put yourself in the situation where you are the landowner because that's what this parable is doing to you. Who, who here would identify immediately with the tenants? Nobody, right? Nobody goes, oh, yeah, I'm the guy that just robbed somebody and beat his servant. Nobody would do that. They would immediately think, wow, this landowner's been wronged. He sent another servant. But that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. How wrong is this landowner now? Really wrong. He sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of that vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son. Now, I'm not taught you all to string pearls here today. And he's not speaking about an Old Testament. Well, he is, but... Do I have to tell you when he says, My son, the one that I love, who we're talking about? What should this make you think of? The father who is the landowner who sent his prophets and then sent his son. Isn't that immediately where your mind should go? Whom I love, perhaps they will what him? Respect him. Perhaps they will respect him. We find out in the Older Testament that the vast majority of the earth's population showed no respect for Father God. There was one people group that he worked with especially thinking that if these special people who are built to display my wonder, my glory, who I've treated as my special, very own, will respect and love me, then the world will see me in them. Right? That was the purpose of the law. We find out in the book of Romans that they too are bound over to sin the same way we are. They too failed just like we did. And if the special people failed, how far does that leave you from God? But somehow or another we've taken parables like this one and we've twisted this into... They are wicked. We are righteous. What was theirs has been taken away from them and given to us. Friends, that is not what this parable teaches, but let's talk about what it does teach and then you can draw your own conclusions. When the tenants saw him, they they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and his inheritance will be ours. What did they want? They wanted the land for themselves. They were already on the land. They were already working it. But what did they want? They wanted control of it. They wanted to do with it what they wanted to do. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will be the... What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give their vineyards to others. I want you to hear something. 
First century Israel is the one hearing these words. First century Israel is hearing this parable. There is not 2,000 years of Jews and Gentiles for us to think about in the perspective. In the immediate context, this parable interprets itself as we go. The people heard this and they said, May this never be. What do you think that this here refers to? May this never be. Them what? Them killing the son. They said, oh, no way. May this never be. May there never be a benevolent landowner who sends his son and his son is treated in this way. May this never be. Because they identified with the landowner, which was what the point of the parable was. But there is one group of people here listening that gets particularly indignant because they recognize the deeper meaning here. The average Jew said, may this never be. They did not want to see the type of God's Son dying. They didn't want to see that. We're going to read over this stones thing and then we'll get there and I'll come back to the stones. May the, when the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Would you know where that was quoted if there was not a little footnote there? Oh, it's just because it's Old Testament, right? Never mind that it's quoted in Acts 4. Never mind that it's quoted several times in Peter's letters. Never mind that it's quoted in the book of Romans in the ninth chapter. Would you have known it? We need to love this Word, saints. You want to understand God the way to understand... It'd be kind of like trying to understand your spouse and never speaking with her. And man, I know you've tried. It doesn't work. Jennifer and I have gotten to the place after 13 years of marriage and 16 years uh, in a relationship together where maybe it doesn't require as much discussion as it used to. She's finally beat me into her way of thinking. But we have to communicate to understand each other. When we don't read God's Word, how can you expect to know what He's like? And in the absence of the guiding of His Word, you know what happens? You come out with things like, well, I believe. I'm not talking about somebody else, saints. I'm talking about us. Well, I believe. My God would never. Hmm. But what do you base your opinion on? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. It's Psalm 118. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. You ever thought about what that meant? What do you think the early audience thought that meant? Let me show you one more thing, then we'll get to that. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest Jesus immediately because they knew that He had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. What a strange dichotomy here. The priests, those are Sadducees, the religious aristocracy in Israel, those who drew their worth from being in the temple... And the teachers of the law were offended with what Jesus said because they saw themselves as the keeper of the land. They saw themselves as the tenant of the land. They were the ones that were plotting, killing the landowner's son, and they understood what it meant. Now, if you've ever taken this whole parable and applied it to all of the Jewish people and that God has taken their land, taken their blessing, and given it to us, let me tell you, you were wrong. The reason the chief priests and the Pharisees did not do this right then, what does that last verse say? They were afraid of the people. Why? 
Because the overwhelming majority of the Jews loved Jesus. They saw Him as a great rabbi. They were enthralled with His teaching. They wanted to know where He got such authority. And they were excited about it. Who was not excited? The Sadducees. John 10 and 11 tells us why. He will come and take away our place. He's going to cause the Romans to crush our temple and take away our land. They wanted any Messianic figure crushed. They didn't really believe the Word. They just liked their positions of authority. Now, we've used Pharisee as such a bad word for so long, haven't we? You watch carefully. Jesus, more often than not, ends up on the side of the Pharisees from a theological standpoint. Sure, he talks about some of them hypocritical. And I couldn't do that about anybody in a church or even in this room, could I? But he's really hard on the Sadducees. You know why? They loved their aristocracy and their positions. But let's get back to this stone thing, because that's where our teaching is. This stone. He said, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The people said, no way! Never! No, no, may this never be! We don't want this situation where tenants are killing a landowner's son. That would be wrong! He says, well, come on, guys. You know the Scripture. What does it mean when it says the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. They knew the Scripture. We have to read it. Let's turn to Psalm 118. Keep your finger in Luke. Y'all there? Okay, I'm just going to point to a few things because I don't have time to read all of this and I have a lot I want to cover with you. And I'm sure you're all intimately familiar with this already, right? But you will be by next week, won't you? Because when I spur you and I poke at you and I prod you like this to get you up off of your salvation, boy, that phrase is pregnant with meaning, isn't it? When I prod you like that, it's to get you to study, to get you to learn, because we don't want to be uninformed, do we? We want to know and love our Lord, our God, who paid such a price to get us this book, huh? In Psalm 118, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. By the way, that's all three people groups on the earth. That's the nation of Israel. That's the priesthood. And that's all the Gentiles. The writer of Psalm 118 intimately understood the heart of God. He said it's going to start with a nation and their priesthood, and it will spread to the world. Let them all say, Love the Lord. His love endures forever. He goes on to talk about being set free. In verse 17, he says, He will die but live. He understands the resurrection. Starting in verse 19 though, Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. This is the gate of the Lord. If I told you John 10... Would that bring to remembrance anything? Did Jesus ever call Himself a gate? Some of you are nodding your heads. Yes, He called Himself a gate. That's because in Jewish thought, there would be a man who would be the gate of the Lord that would show them the way to righteousness. So when He said He was the gate, and we just thought He was talking about a sheep pen, they understood Psalm 118. But enough of that. Get back to what we're talking about. Verse 21, I will give you thanks for you answered Me. You have become My salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
Oh Lord, save us! You know what that word is in Hebrew? They shouted it at the triumphal entry. Hosanna! Hosanna! What else? Son of David! There's a reason for that. Go back to Luke 20. There's a reason for that. This Psalm 118 carried with it an idea. There was a stone that the builders rejected. That was past tense. And it has become a capstone. If you're reading that in 1000 B.C., you're not reading it in 2000 A.D. You're not reading it after the cross. Not after 2,000 years of history. If you are a Jew reading this in 1000 B.C. as a song, who is the stone the builders rejected? How could it be Jesus? He'd not been born. It's 1000 B.C. There was a particular king, not a king that the people had chosen, not a king that stood out from among his brothers, not a king with beauty or majesty to draw people to him, a king who was a shepherd in a field who liked to kill lions and bears that I've been teaching you an awful lot about. And when the prophet Samuel came to him, he was not on Samuel's list, He would have been a stone that was rejected. And when his own daddy looked among the brothers, he didn't even bring him. He was a stone that had been rejected. But the Lord raised him up to the place where he was the greatest king in Israel's history, and it was marvelous in the Israelites' eyes. You know why? Because God took something lowly. He took something humble. He took a servant in the field and exalted him to the highest position in the land, and it brought Israel victory over their enemies. So much so that from 2 Samuel 7, 8, and 9, we get the idea of a Davidic promise where there would be a son of David, somebody just like him, who would come. This is why on the day of triumphal entry, they said, save us, Hosanna. That means save us, O son of David. They understood David to be this stone the builders had rejected. Now Jesus is giving them a fresh, new interpretation. He says, oh yeah, you don't think you guys are going to kill the son of the landowner? Then what does it mean? When he says the stone the builder rejected had become the capstone, they're all thinking, it meant David. And yet Jesus seems to be applying it to himself, and they don't like it. Say, no, no, never. You're not going to get killed. Watch this next verse. Look at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Boy, I've worked really hard at this in the past. I mean, too hard. It's embarrassing. You know, when you don't know, all you're left to do is surmise. Everyone who falls on that stone, the stone that the builders rejected but who would become the capstone, is broken to pieces. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, if this was an essay here today, and I gave you a sheet of paper and said, write for me an interpretation, we would probably get things like, oh, those who receive God, those who trip over Him, they get a crushed heart that God won't despise. But if He falls on you, He's going to crush you, man. He's going to break you to pieces. Right? Might we get something like that? I might even know somebody who has that written in their Bible right over here. I mean, I may have heard that somebody did that. I want to read you something from the Talmud. Now, oh, Eric's reading extra-biblical things. Wouldn't it be helpful to know what the people had been taught? Wouldn't it be helpful to know when Jesus makes reference to something that there were other things going on? Imagine yourself a thousand years from today, one thousand years from today, and we say, oh, that dude jumped over the Potomac. What's he talking about? Did he literally leap over it? Oh, in their culture there was a legend about George Washington leaping over the Potomac. 
Brad chopped down the cherry tree. You know, these things had references. Listen to this. This from a rabbi written in the Talmud. If a stone falls... This is called the parable of the stone in the pot. If a stone falls on a pot, woe to the pot. Why? Because it breaks it, right? If a pot falls on the stone, woe to the pot. Doesn't matter which you drop on which, the pot's going to lose in that battle, right? You hear that? In either case, woe to the pot. So whoever ventures to attack the people of Israel receives his deserts on their account. They taught that Israel was like a stone and every challenger was like a pot. Whether or not they came and attacked Israel and tripped over it, they'd be broken. Or whether Israel attacked them, they dropped the stone on them, they would be broken. They saw the people of faith as an immovable, hardened object before God, resolute, setting their face like flint. I've taught you that before, haven't I? Face like flint. This phrase that is over there says, As the time drew near for him to return to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. There is no word for resolutely set out in Hebrew. That literally says Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. It was a word picture meaning he would not be dissuaded. Well, this idea was around a stone, and we're going to talk about that today. The stone that God would put there that couldn't be moved, that couldn't be broken. You could fall on it and be broken. It could fall on you and you could be crushed. Either way, the stone was the same. Why did Jesus follow it up? They may reject me now, but I will be the capstone. It doesn't matter whether you trip over me or I fall on you in the end. What God has purposed in my life will stand. Come on, saints. That's worth being excited about. It doesn't matter whether you are attacked or you're attacking or what the circumstances are. God's purpose in your life will stand. A little parable about the pot and the stone. The pot's going to get broken. The stone will survive. Verse, uh, let's go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, we're going to learn some things about stones that I hope will add some deeper meaning to your understanding of Jesus. Now, we're going to be in the Old Testament for a while, so I'm going to refer back to what's in Luke that actually refers to what's in the Old Testament. And uh, just trust that you'll remember. In Deuteronomy 27... This idea of stones, a stone carried in the ancient world a lot of meaning with it. Just like when I read to you about the transfiguration, we had embedded meanings. We could say that the terminology was pregnant, so to speak. Just the use of the word stone carried with it certain meanings. You remember last week when I was reading to you about Domitian and Augustus and Tiberius and Nero and Caligula and Claudius and all of those guys and some of the things that they said in their lives and the history that surrounded them all of a sudden made Revelation 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 start to maybe have some new meaning in it? Wait till you hear about these stones. If you want to take notes about these stones, you probably should. The reason I don't teach more on the book of Revelation is because, honestly, the other 65 books interpret it. And of the 65 books that interpret it, 39 are in the Older Testament. And they form the basis for the interpretation of the book of Revelation. So before you go buy some fat, bloated prophecy teacher's book on the shelf and pay too much money for it, why don't you read what somebody died to give you? 
These men were sawed in two. They were thrown in pits. The men who printed these books for the very first time were burned on their printing presses. We don't need to go read what somebody... Look, study all you can. I don't care whose books you read. I'm not being esoteric. I'm trying to tell you that the keys that you need are in this book. And yet we always cling, cling, cling to some other river, right? Aren't there other cleaner rivers out there that I could go bathe in and be cleaned? Isn't it so much better if we can pay $19.99, get the slick haircut, silver-suited guy's book on how to understand this? Well, it may not be right. It may not be better, but it certainly is easier, and that's what America is all about, isn't it? What's easiest? Hmm. Y'all in Deuteronomy 27? In Deuteronomy 27, we find this in verse 4. And when you have crossed the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal as I commanded you today. Coat them with plaster. Build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Do not use any iron tool on them. Build the altar of the Lord your God with field stones and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. There would be stones taken from a field and made into an altar. Now, if you were going to make something, wouldn't you want nice, neat, uniform bricks? Wouldn't you? I mean, come on. What's the first thing that we do when we build something? <laughs> we're supposed to do. We're supposed to find a line, make it level, right? You need something. We have tools that we call squares. We need something to build by. God said, that's not how I'm going to do this. When you build something for me, don't use an iron tool on it. In fact, dude, Exodus 20, which you don't have to turn to, the 25th verse says, if you use a tool on one of the stones for my altar, it will defile it. The same way as if you walked up it naked. Don't do it. Why on earth would God do this? We're going to find out later that you're called stones. We're going to find out later that you're being built into an altar for God. And God did not want something. You find out that God likes Brad very much the way Brad is. He likes Fred and Gary very much the way that they are right now. He wants to refine them by His Spirit. He does not want somebody else reshaping their personality because each one of you have breathed into you the divine image of God and it's reflected in a different way. The reason that the Bible teaches this concept is because each person was an image of the Creator and to remold you into my image would be an idol. Boy, could the church hear that word? To be molded into the image of some man would make that man an idol. Do you think there's some pastors that would be well served by hearing that? God wants you to be an uncut stone. He doesn't want you to be someone else's work. So why do we teach? Why does the Bible tell us to imitate? This is all refining what God has already given you. He likes Patricia very much the way she is. She is His craftsmanship, His work. But if we use a chisel on a stone and we make them all uniform, and you can't tell one from the other. Oh boy, it is bland and boring, and it speaks only of some man as the craftsman. God never wanted that. A stone, first and foremost, had to be uncut. It needed to be what was called a field stone. This also took great time in assembly, saints. God took an awful lot of time to go grab Nick, and then go grab Gabe, and go, wow, look at these strange protruding edges. Oh, look, they fit right here. And then to take those two guys and find David and go, oh, wow, these two will fit with this one right here. 
and the altar begins to assemble. He never wanted to go look for all stones that look just alike. He said, when you build me an altar, it better be with undressed stones. Is there a message in that for us? Come on, hallelujah, there's got to be. There has got to be. Otherwise, how could He use me? Look at all of these rough edges, and yet that's how God called me. And the ones that are getting smooth, He is smoothing. Genesis 11 tells us a story. I don't think we have time to read it today, so we're going to move on past it. In Genesis 11, there's a story about a tower. It's called Babel. The Tower of Babel is the opposite of an altar to God. It is the exact opposite. In the Tower to God, you take field stones, right? You fit them together uniquely. The person who crafted these stones was God Himself. You had to search for the stones that would interlock with each other. In fact, they had to come by invitation only. They had to be called. Only the Father could choose them. Only the builder of the altar could choose them. And what would hold them together? Would it be the strength of the stones? No, they had uneven edges and stuff. It would be the adhesive that you used. The Word tells us that Jesus holds all things together. This is how we can have a shipping superintendent from BP in charge of most of the Western Hemisphere in the same room with a nine-year-old and they have all things in common. That's how we can do that. Jesus holds us together. This Tower of Babel, they took mud bricks, the work of their own hands. They used tar, mortar from the earth, not something heavenly, something earthly, to stick them together. And they said, let us build a name for ourselves. So what did God do? What did He do? He destroyed it. My nine-year-old knows the answer. He knocked it down. He melted it. Today, there's a pile of glass where it used to stand because the heat melted the mud bricks. Still there today. By the way, it's in Iraq, if you wanted to know. When we build an altar for God, the stones had to be uncut. Secondly, when we look at stones, they were to be a sign for people. Stones are synonymous with God's handiwork, His craftsmanship for an altar, and they're also a sign for people. Turn to Joshua. and read you two references in Joshua. Y'all sleeping through this? Or has it got your... Do you want to know anything more about stones? Somebody turn down that air. I am uh, freezing in here. Okay, in Joshua 4. No, no, no. We got, it. we got it right there. It was on remote. In Joshua 4, we're going to look about stones with a sign on them. Joshua 4, starting in verse 21. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. What on earth is this? God called Israel to cross the Jordan River. It was at flood stage, an almost unaccomplishable feat. But when the priests stepped forward and their feet touched the water, it dried up before them. So from the very middle of this trial, this hardship, they were to take stones, not stones they had carved out of a mountain, not stones that had been hewn, Stones from the center of that river and they were to build an altar on the other side. And why? What was the purpose? So that when your children ask you what is the meaning of these stones, you can tell them the story. First and foremost, saints, you are supposed to be uncut, not the work of any man. You are supposed to be the work of God Himself. Secondly, people are supposed to look at your life and say, Bobby, what is the meaning of this? I notice you have a limp. He begins to tell the story of how God put His leg back together and His life back together. Our lives are supposed to invoke the question. 
Doesn't the Scripture tell us in this way? And the same man who writes about stones constantly in his epistle says this. He says, Be ready to give an account whenever anyone asks you. Your life is supposed to be like these stones, crying out for people to ask because there's something unique and remarkable about it. We'll get to that guy in his letter later. In Joshua 8, flip a few pages. Look what he does with this altar. 8 verse 30. Then Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings, sacrificed fellowship offerings. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on the stones the law of Moses which he had written. These uncut stones were assembled into an altar, an altar that glorified God because He made it. These uncut stones were there for the purpose of people asking, what is the meaning of these stones? And when you examine them closely, what did you find? The very heart of God inscribed upon them, the law of God. Come on now, did you ever think you'd relate to a rock like this? Boy, what does it mean then when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if they were quiet, these stones would cry out. Stones in the Bible were supposed to speak a message. And Jesus said, I may be rejected, but I will not be moved. You come against me, you'll be broken. You, I fall on you, you'll be crushed. Any way it works, guys, just like David's ascension could not be stopped, although all of the religious leadership of Israel tried, Saul tried to kill him for how many years? And yet he became the capstone and it was marvelous in their eyes. Jesus was saying, I'll be opposed, I'll even be killed. Just like that parable said. But I will not be stopped. Wow, what about these stones? In Exodus 39, you find out something special about the stones yet still. In the 14th verse, he said, look, I want you to take these stones, 12 of them, I want you to put them on an ephod. There's going to be a guy who's going to be a high priest. His garments are going to symbolize something heavenly. And on him, I want 12 stones, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on it, and a seal. Zechariah 3, you find a stone in front of Jesus, or in front of Joshua, a high priest, with seven eyes on it, and an inscription says, In a single day I will take away the sin from this land. In the book of Revelation, you find stones with names written on them. In fact, we get new names written on us. Your name has to do with your function in the Bible. You are supposed to be uncut, uniquely designed by God. You're supposed to be assembled into a group where you fit in a place no other stone could fit. Your unique calling before God in the body of Christ. More than that, you can't be the work of any man, not a pastor, not a prophet, not a teacher, not an evangelist. You are God's workmanship. Your very life is supposed to cause people to go, what's the meaning of all of this? Let me ask Him. Why are these stones assembled there? This is remarkable. It's amazing. Let me ask about it. When they look close, they're supposed to see written on you the very heart of God. When they look closer yet, they'll see that you are sealed of Him and that your name is your function in the kingdom. Your yes is yes. Your no is no. What you say you are, by the way, which is Christian, you are. That's what they're supposed to see. The best thing, though, is about these stones that were predictions. I told you general facts about stones in the Bible. 
but there were special stones that were alluded to. We're going to stay in the book of Isaiah here for a minute, and you definitely need to stay awake for this. In Isaiah, starting in 54, there were two stones constantly referred to in the Scripture. Not just any stones, not stones that were just laid in altars, but a special stone. You know how there were many prophets, but there was a prophet spoken of? There were many kings, but there was a king spoken of? There were many anointed people, and yet there was one anointed spoken of? Well, there were many stones, but there was one special stone spoken of, and it was very, very difficult to discern because it's seemingly unrelated. One spoken of almost negatively for the nation and the other spoken of positively. You want the negative or the positive first? Listen at that. Well, I can't be a man of the people. I'm going to give you the positive first. It didn't matter what you said, Nick. I was going to do that anyway. Isaiah 54, starting in verse 11. If I can find it. O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with of turquoise, your fortunes with sapphires. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Spoke of a day when the city that was torn down would have very precious stones built into it. This idea meant that they were waiting for somebody to come and do this. I just can't help myself. Have you never read Revelation 21? I'm sorry. There was a city described with foundations of precious stones. But I'm sure it's a literal city. I'm sure it is because that's just what we've been told, right? This big weeble-wobble looking thing, 1,600 miles high, coming down from the sky to plant on the earth with a 50-mile atmosphere. Oh, I'm sure. No, we could never use the Older Testament to interpret the New. The Old's obsolete, right? Come on, how can you sit here and let me say that? No, of course it's not. This will tell you how to interpret the New. They were waiting for specific prophecies about stones, but a particular stone. One is, there would be a day of righteousness that would come with precious stones as a foundation for a city. Isaiah 28, go backwards. Here's another good one. In Isaiah 28... What we find in the 16th verse, if I can get to Isaiah 28, in the 16th verse, so this is what the Sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone. Now we're not talking about many stones, we're talking about a singular stone. In Zion, a tested stone. A precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The city's foundations are going to be made of many precious stones, but there's going to be one they're all measured by. It's not just going to be any stone. It's going to be one that will have been tested. Wow, that's interesting. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. Trust is faith. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge. The lie and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. There's going to be a stone, a tried, tested stone who will annul the agreement Israel had with the grave. They were waiting for a city with foundations made of precious stones, but there had to be one that would be laid first. It couldn't just be any any stone. It would be tested. And how do you know that it passed the test when it annulled the agreement 
with the grave. There's one more scripture in Isaiah that I need to read you, and then we'll move on to the other expectations surrounding stones. Turn to Isaiah 51. I know we're turning into a lot of scripture, but it would be better if you had them memorized. In lieu of that, we're going to read them. Is that okay? I don't have them memorized. It's so easy for me to heap that upon you and then go home and watch TV. Y'all in Isaiah 51? In Isaiah 51, let's look at the first verse. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and who seek Yahweh. Look to the rock from which you were cut, to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one, and I blessed him and made him many. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. The law will go out from me. My justice will become like light to the nations. My righteousness draws near speedily and my salvation is on the way. What were they supposed to be looking for? They were supposed to be looking at the rock from which they were quarried out of, the rock from which they were hewn. The Jews taught that Abraham was a rock. David was a rock because they were immovable. Opposition did not break them. They broke the opposition because of their trust in God. They were waiting for a special rock that would come that would be the cornerstone and would be built like Abraham, full of trust, full of faith, prophesied about, All of these are good things, right? Every one of these promises of precious stones, of the tested stone, of the stone from Abraham, all of them involved salvation for the people. All of them were good. Something to look forward to, right? Well, the problem is there were also these kind of prophecies about stones. Look at Isaiah 8. I'll only read you two of these. Y'all still with me? We turned off the air conditioner. The heat is causing you to pass out, right? You can turn it back on whenever you want. In Isaiah 8, yeah, what we all had to endure, right? Church is meeting underground six months at a time. We go 30 seconds without the air conditioner and fat pastor is about to pass out. (laughs) Isaiah 8, verse 11. That's my Hebrew name, fat pastor. 8.11 The Lord spoke to me with His strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call a conspiracy everything that these people call a conspiracy. Do not fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread and He will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, He will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, He will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble and fall and be broken and will be snared and captured. Now, you're waiting for this stone hewn from the rock of Abraham, this precious stone, a tried stone. We're singing, I lay in Zion and all of those songs, right? And you're waiting for it and you are excited. And then you read this other thing. But wait, this stone is also going to be a stone that causes men to stumble. Oh, it'll be a trap and a snare for us. For joy. Aren't you happy? No, probably not. In fact, it'd be hard for you to make that connection, wouldn't it? This side of the cross, we can look and see Jesus was both. That side of the cross, I don't know what this stone is, must be the Babylonians. No, it had to have been the Assyrians. It'd be Alexander the Great in the future. Maybe Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. Got to be something that God would naturally send us this stone, would he? Could you be a little confused? 
Then if you read the Psalm 18, that there is a stone that the builders would reject and it would become the capstone. You mean there's, there's a stone we're going to say no to that's a good stone? That can't, that can't be good, can it? Let's put some of this together for you. Jesus was an uncut stone. Isaiah said He had no beauty, no majesty to draw men to Him, and yet men were drawn to Him. He was not the work of any man. He was the work of God the Father and Him alone. His design honored God as opposed to a mud brick like the the religious establishment that honored themselves. His life was like a sign to cause people to go, what's this mean? He even called Himself the manna from heaven. Do you remember what manna meant? What is it? (laughs) Did His life cause people to go, what's the meaning of this? The Word was written on His life like the law was written on the stones of Joshua's altar. Everywhere He went, what you saw about Him was the Word of God to the point where John said, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He had a name given of God and the seal of of the Lord on His life. What was His name? I am Yahweh's salvation. My name is Yeshua. Yahweh's salvation was the name accurate. Was He sealed of God? Yeah, He completed His task. His life would build a precious foundation for the city of God. If the church, the group of believers, the Israel of God is the city of God, who is it built upon? Whose design? Who do you measure your lives by? You look to the Vatican for your help, right? Oh, no. You look to Billy Graham. You build your life like Billy Graham or Charles Stanley or Joel Osteen or Eric Stevens or Smith Wigglesworth or any other... No. There is one measuring line for your life. One master that you stand or fall to. He is your cornerstone. And Revelation said He was the Alpha and what was that other thing? Omega. Yes, He's the cornerstone and He's the capstone. Zechariah 3 spoke of a temple of God. He said, oh man, it's going to be by my Spirit and not by your might. In fact, everybody's excited because the plumbers laid a foundation, but you wait until the capstone's put on to shouts of God bless it. That is Jesus. He is both the foundation and He is the pinnacle at the top of the building. His life would build a precious foundation for the city of God. He would be tested, a tested cornerstone, and found to be the thing that everything else would be measured by. What was the proof of that? He annulled the contract with death. He would be cut from the quarry of Abraham, the father of our faith. He would cause men to stumble as a sign and a symbol for Israel. The same Scripture that says that the houses of Israel would stumble if you keep reading says this will be as a sign and a symbol. Their stumbling was not without purpose. The book of Romans tells us what the purpose was. So that all men would understand whether Jew or Gentile, you're both bound over to sin. You both make mistakes. Those that I've given special revelation to and those without, you are both equally Guilty. In fact, the more revelation I've given you, the more guilty you've become. That's what the book of Romans is really about. He would be both rejected and accepted, but eventually he would become the capstone. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, you need to build. Some of you will use hay and stubble and straw, wood. Others will use precious stones. If what you build survives, then you'll be rewarded. If it doesn't, you'll pass through the fire like somebody naked. And then he jumps right in and reminds them something because these stones carried meaning embedded in them. He said, by the way, you are 
the temple of God. What is he talking about? What is it that we're building? We're building the body of Christ, the city of God, the bride of the Lamb, the ruling force on the planet for the millennial reign. It's being assembled now. Your work today is either precious stones or it's wood, hay, stubble, or straw. That's what Corinthians 3 teaches. But I want to finish with Peter's letter. Turn to 1 Peter 2, and this is our last Scripture for today. Unless I change my mind and have lied to you. But probably not. Have you all learned something so far? What was stringing pearls? Stringing pearls was briefly mentioning pearls, Scriptures, that had larger context. Peter. Peter was our first Roman Christian, right? No, he wasn't, was he? Peter was a Jew, a disciple, a Talmudim of a rabbi named Yeshua, the Hamashiach. So Peter undoubtedly would be familiar with stringing pearls, correct? You remember when I just read you all of the facts about stones? All of the things that Jesus was said to do, would do, and did do? Well, look how Peter does that same thing. 1 Peter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice... I'm sorry, let's start in verse 4. As you come to Him, the living stone... Why doesn't He explain that? Why didn't He tell you what a stone was? What it meant? What had been prophesied about it? Why does He call Him the living stone and He doesn't explain it? That's right. He expected you to know. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. Did that help? The stone rejected that became the capstone? You also, like living stones... Uh Uh-oh. He's a stone, but you are also like Him? Living stones? That means everything He was, you are? Are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering suitable sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For the Scripture says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Isn't it nice that Peter quoted that? Isn't it? But should he have had to? If he was speaking to an entirely Jewish audience, he wouldn't have. He would have simply called him a stone and they would have understood. But he's not. He's speaking to guys like you and me too. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not... Now he's going to quote something here. Isn't that nice? But he shouldn't have to. He shouldn't have to spell out the pearls for us. We should understand his references anyway. But praise God, he spells it out. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that caused men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumbled because they disobeyed the message, which is also what they were destined for. Who disobeyed the message? The religious leadership. The people loved Jesus. This is why the church grew 3,000 people the first time Peter ever preached. By the way, first time Peter preaches? Very first time? You know what he preaches about? The stone that the builders rejected. Go back and read it. It's there. It's in Acts 4. You find Paul talking about it. You find Peter talking about it. And then when you get John's revelation of Jesus, tell me there's not a city in it with foundations of precious stones named after the apostles. Tell me that there is not a stone on it with a name that nobody knows but God. The same stone that is in Zechariah that says he'll take away their sin in a single day. Tell me that these things don't have reference all the way through the Bible. They do. They do. It's our job to dig out these pearls and learn to string them together. 
That is the scarlet thread that runs all the way through the Word. That's how books written by people over a period of 1,600 years on different continents by as many as 40 different authors can all have a scarlet thread through them stringing pearls together. Now, the Bible says that when God conceals something, you are noble if you seek it out. I want us to be noble. I want to study this Word. Now, you can take security in the fact that your personality and your design is the gift of God. You are an uncut stone. You're drawing in here to the altar of God and your union with all of these people, whether hundreds of miles away or in this room, is the drawing of God. But it takes work for us to measure our lives by Jesus, to build with the proper material so that in that day we will have something to show for it. And I want to do that. Do you? Amen. Amen. Let's stand up. There's one more story I wanted to tell you that is just a fun one. You know, preachers get these books and they quote them without telling you they're quoting from them and it sounds like this. You know, this reminds me of a story. And that's their way of not having to tell you that they stole this from a book. So let me tell you, I stole this from a book, but I love it. It said that there was a young man who was the only survivor of a terrible shipwreck. And as the waves tossed him to and fro, he landed upon a rock. It took some days before a rescue party got to him. And they saw that there were dead bodies everywhere and that nobody had survived except this child. And they were amazed. And they said, Son, did the waves not throw you about and toss you to and fro during the night? He said, Yes, they did. But the rock I was on did not move. I praise God for the immovable stone, friends. It was cut from the quarry of Abraham. And when you cling to it and measure your life by it, you'll be just as hard and unyielding towards the things of God, doing them, as those men were. That's what I want. It's what you should want. And anybody that comes against you and attacks you, whether they trip over you or you happen to fall on them, it's bad for them and good for you because God's purpose in your life will stand. Let's pray.